Hello and welcome to part seven of the um, Adjutant Lounge series, The Russian Way of War. I'm joined today by several guests in which we will be discussing um, quite an important topic, which is the academic responsibility um, in the face of genocide. Today I'm kindly joined by Dr. Philip Blood. Hello. Dr. Ian Garner. Good morning. And uh, legal counsel. Dustin Decane. So, hi. Jay, so, hi, hi. Um, so to get the ball rolling, this is going to be quite a heavy subject, uh, listener. Um, and there'll be various viewpoints on this, um, and we'll be discussing what, what the Russians are currently up to. Just to sort of brief overview, um, things are developing. Um, in Mariupol, um, there has been continue targeting our civilian targets. We're now seeing the grain silos which store Ukrainian grain um, and cereal crops slowly being emptied. There have been reports that seed stock has been stolen by the Russians and has already made its way um, into Russia along with the, the equipment, um, some getting as far as Chechnya. Um, and we've also got uh, the recent announcements um, by the UN that they're not happy people um, and they'll be upping their, their mission in the area. And most importantly, the Canadian declaration, I believe it was it was yesterday, was it, or was it this morning? I got it this morning. Yeah, same here. Um, um, they'd recognise the genocide was being carried out by the Russians. Now, as always with these podcasts, we have a discussion about what we're going to talk about. So it's not an entirely all off hoof. And in this discussion, uh, Dustin, you made a really good point um, regarding how we're approaching genocide um, as academics. Would you mind just recapping that for the listener, please? OK. Um... In light of what uh, Philip said uh, for the last uh, podcast, um, I would set the terms for today's discussion as being uh, a discussion on the responsibility of academics to, at this point and currently, uh, be calling uh, the events in Ukraine see awful euphemism events which is why we should be using the term genocide because using the term genocide especially by academics lays the political uh, legal and moral framework for uh, prosecution of russian individuals responsible for uh, genocide it lays the foundations for further uh, sanctions against the Russian state, Russian individuals, and also perhaps uh, lays the um, foundations for further uh, economic and uh, military aid to Ukraine. And an important part of um, genocide as defined in the Genocide Convention uh, is uh, establishing genocidal intent. And I think uh, academics should now be working on the subject of showing uh, Putin's uh, and his friends genocidal intent based on 
what uh, has been said up to this point and is being said and will be said as uh, Russia ratchets up its uh, quite insane rhetoric uh, relating to Ukraine and uh, its uh, annexation, occupation, uh, deportation uh, and language lessons. Uh, for its uh, citizens, uh, I think academics should be now studying, intensely studying uh, the subject and uh, working on it to provide uh, future ammunition for uh, lawyers dealing with um, genocidal intent. And also there are uh, legal political consequences for using uh, genocide, for instance, in the case of, uh, of uh, Canada. If Canada is calling uh, it a genocide, that opens the way for um, persons to be prosecuted under Canadian laws on uh, universal jurisdiction relating to uh, genocide. Universal jurisdiction means that anybody in the world is um, liable uh, and can be punished by a Canadian court for their actions, for their for committing genocide. Doesn't have to be a Canadian. A Canadian doesn't have to be a victim, and doesn't have to occur in uh, Canada. Now, universal jurisdiction is a quite novel um, uh, development in international law. Uh, not every country recognizes it. In fact, a minority of countries recognize it. But it's an important part of developing uh, law dealing with genocide, atrocities and war crimes. So, Canada saying that, that opens its way for Canadian prosecutors to take uh, put into court, as it were. And that's that's my background for uh, what we were discussing today. OK, thanks, Dustin. Ian, um, <clears throat> with your background, um, especially sort of in, in Russian history and Russian war propaganda, what, what's what's your view of this? I mean, this is, I think, one of those periods where the evidence is so clear that for me, unlike Dustin, I'm not so fussed right now whether we call it genocide or not, because I don't understand the legal ramifications. But it's clear that Russian troops, whether independently or by instruction, are committing atrocities of some sort. Right? They're murdering civilians, they're raping civilians, they're wantonly destroying infrastructure and houses, they're attacking first responders. It's time even for academics, I think, to move beyond talking about whether this is genocide, whether this is a war crime, an atrocity, mass murder, whatever, something has to be done. Right? And the academic response is to sit and gather more evidence, more evidence and more evidence and talk until the cows come home. But academics have really good tools to draw historical parallels with what's gone in the, on in the past, to point out that our rhetoric for the last 
50 years or 60 years has been all about never again when it comes to war crimes and atrocities. And yet consistently, whenever we see these things, academics are hesitant to leap to judgments for good reasons, because that's the academic method in terms of making conclusions. Governments do nothing. The public are opposed to war crimes and opposed to bad things happening, but often resistant to making real sacrifices to actually stopping those things happening. And so we have to figure out a way for academics to get off the fence and to stop talking about things in the grand sweep of history and to start saying, well, we can recognize the same things occurring today that have occurred. You know, when you talk, let, let's take the example of the way that Ukrainians are discussed by ordinary Russians and by Russian media as an example. Ukrainians are discussed as vermin. Ukrainians are discussed as rats. Ukrainians are depicted as pigs, as animals. They're often referred to as nyiludi, which means, or ludi are humans. Nyiludi means unhumans, the opposite of humans, right? It doesn't take a genius. It doesn't take an expert to work out that this language has worrying parallels with the language of 1930s Germany. And to say we should be documenting this language, academics have the tools to do that. Academics have the tools to make these comparisons. Let's do something now to actually draw the public's attention to that, the government's attention to that. And we will spend the next 50, 60, 70, 80 years, whatever it is, talking through the objectivity and the ways we can interpret this and the ways that this might play out in more academic ways. But for now, academics need to put the career goals on hold. Unfortunately, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit more, they're not encouraged to do this by the structure of the academy anywhere in Western Europe or North America, which generally discourages activism and frowns on activism and encourages only or recognises only things like journal publications, which may take years to come to fruition and book publications, which will take even more years to appear. Right? But what happens between now and the two years from now where your lovely 8000 word article appears in the journal of whatever? And I, I would actually say to give people credit, there's been some excellent work by journals and academics who are already trying to do more than just that kind of slow thinking. Phil. <clears throat> Um, given that, you know, with, with your experience in, in the study of genocide and echoing um, Ian's remarks about the, the very apparent and unsettling parallels of, of the rhetoric um, used particularly by Nazi Germany, how, how do you, what's your personal feelings on this matter? Um, <clears throat> well, listening to Ian, it, it reminded me of my of what happened in uh, the 1990s with Yugoslavia. Um, and it's one of the reasons, what, what happened at that time, uh, I'm reminded of, was that the genocide school came together um, and there were various conferences and um, discussions and you saw, you saw a building of an academic school during the 90s with um, the backdrop of Yugoslavia and Rwanda, uh, Grozny and many other cases. 
Um, it was a different time. NATO was involved in the airstrikes in Kosovo. Um, there was a will to intervene. There was Eli Weisel's um, memorable appeal to Clinton. Um, many of us who were in that, in, who, who were doing our PhDs at that time, felt the need to be active. I, I was fairly active with some refugees and victims groups. Um, it's a, it's a very, it's very traumatic that kind of thing. Um, I tend to avoid the. I know I understand why people use the the the, the Nazi comparison. I'm, I'm not against it. I just don't do it myself. I'm I'm kind of more interested in what's happened to this Russian army um, since 1979. It went into Afghanistan, and what came out has been has gone through various processes. And what we're looking at now is an army. Okay, it comes from a re it has had a long record of war crimes in its past, and and being involved in heinous acts like the mass rapes in Germany in 1945. I, I understand all of that, but there was also a fighting side to the to the Russian army, the Red Army, which, given my discussions with certain specialists like Chris Bellamy, only recently, there's a view that the Red Army wouldn't do this kind of thing unless unless there was an element of proportionality. Uh, proportionality is where troops and civilians have become mixed for one reason or another. Um, it, it happens in a war, troops moving fast, too fast will run into uh, communities, they'll open fire on on um, the enemy forces and there's usually um, civilian casualties and to a certain extent the, the military the military history school has always accepted that those kind of casualties were collateral to the war and to a certain extent Russian Russian aggression into East Germany in 1945 um, has always been seen as collateral. The rapes, and since historians in the 90s began to focus on them a lot more, um, distinguish between those Russian crimes from the other Russian crimes. But there was, a, if you look at what happened to certain divisions that were captured by the Russians in, in 1945, there was some post-war post um, punishments given out, especially troops from certain extreme SS units. What we have now, though, is a, is a different situation. And what concerns me when I look at what the, what the Russians are doing, the first thing I saw was they were targeting civilian communities almost before the offensive started. Now, I think all of us in probably agree with me. These areas of Russia and Ukraine are no longer fast areas of wasteland. They're highly developed municipalities with extensive um, suburban boroughs going out far into, uh, as with other Western cities. And so once you start pounding these areas, you're hitting 
masses of civilians with uh, high explosives. And we also know from the targeting on the railway station a couple of weeks ago that refugees who were supposedly given access to escape became a target. And I think we then saw the, the Russians move from the Kiev area and what they left behind was just unspeakable. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the horrors of Bucha, along with everything else that went on, and, and there's a confusion here. We're looking at a, a Russian army that's committing crimes to itself. I mean, imagine, imagine in anybody's mind believing that the Russian army would dig trenches in Chernobyl. I mean, it, it beggars belief. So I, I was, I've been very confused about what this Russian army has been doing. Several, several um, experts suggested to me that it's not being controlled at the centre in Moscow from the general staff. That, uh, like previous campaigns, it's been operated from the western and southern commands, and they're slightly. These district commands have a different attitudes towards how the war should be pushed and progressed. Now, for academics in the genocide field, looking at those situations, how the army is developing, has not been the traditional way of examining genocide. You don't look at the, the original soldiers, the, the fighting units, you tend to look at how many people have been murdered or killed or starved to death. And it's for many um, genocide students, it tends to be an exercise in large numbers. And we're always left with that, that calculation, how, how many bodies does it take, how many dead does it take to, to define genocide? The problem is that that attitude has felt filtered its way into professional thinking. So you listen to an expert in, uh, from the, the British Army who comes on to LBC, LBC radio this week. He says, well, it, it's not genocide because I served in Yugoslavia and the numbers aren't the same size as they were in the Second World War. Well, that's, the, the numbers are irrelevant. It's not the numbers. It, it, it's the crime. And it's what's behind the crime, the motivations behind the crime that make it happen. And it's at that point you should be thinking we have to confront genocide. Now, I'm not going to go much further because I spoke too long, but essentially it's the problem of getting out of, as, as Ian said, you've got to get out of the out of the books and the, the stats and the numbers and the evidence and confront what's actually what's actually happening before us, which is uh, large numbers of people being killed, large numbers of refugees being forced into Western Europe, the psychological horror and 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 other parts, the rapes and, and the grievous crimes. One of one of the things that strikes me as I listen to Philip is that perhaps one of the things that academics can do that's very practical and achievable right now is to try and break outside of their field and break outside of their discipline. Because Philip's right that many of those genocide scholars are doing 
body counting, which almost seems grotesque, and I understand why they do it. But in this particular moment, while this is still occurring, it seems abominable. We've got to understand what is the legal nature of a genocide, and that's where Dustin's business comes in. Is it to do with numbers? Is it to do with intent? Whose intent? An individual soldier's intent? The government's intent? Those commanders in the South and West that Philip noted? We've got to understand the perspective that drives people onto this, and you know that's that's where my discipline comes in, where I look at the the history and the culture behind this, and look at you know for example those those Russian army soldiers who are treated so poorly, and we start to say, well, the Russian army really, as well as having very little regard for life, seems to be driven by this apocalyptic messianic mode of thinking in which the destruction of one thing can serve to renew another so there's there's the justification for you that just as in the second world war we had to sacrifice 25 million soviets to save the world well today if we have to blow up the whole of ukraine to do it then we'll do it again that that perhaps is part of what drives ordinary people on but the genocide scholars won't understand that for now because it takes a Russianist, a Slavicist, to point that out. Right? These, we, we really have to look beyond these individual journals and beyond our departments and figure out how does all of this combine? And, and how do we get this into the heads of politicians that something needs to happen to actually stop it? Because as I see it, we're doing very little to stop it right now. <clears throat> I, I have to I have to agree with you on, on that, Ian. I think um, the, the West, West in particular, um, has been has almost had to be dragged into in, into action um, to, to face this situation, um, rather than being any reaction being the the, the result of uh, foreign policy or. Um, domestic security policy it has literally had to be dragged by public opinion and that in itself is worrisome um and I'm looking at the, the rhetoric message especially in the very early stages of, of this this part of the russo uh, ukraine war where there was this you know the, this the, the russians said that they had to defend themselves from from nato expansion i find it almost ironic that nato have for the large part been almost inactive um, and whilst you have the exercises that have been going on in the Baltic states and the early stages of the um, the campaign it's now building up arms are getting through um, but all the while this is happening uh, the, 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 act, the acts of genocide the physical acts of genocide and the, 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 the atrocities that the Russians are committing which are you know the, the the manifestation of genocide are just stacking up, and that's something. I, you know, as academics, is that an area we should also be looking at? This almost unwilling acceptance to to look facts in the face and say, a we were late responding to this, but b why were we late responding to this? Uh, I see a huge role for academics, a current role. 
a very important one, as uh, underlined by um, Ian. Uh, Russians and Slavicists need to be talking with scholars of genocide on genocidal uh, intent being expressed in Russian media, which is uh, split off and exists in its sort of uh, weird world, separate from Western media, and needs analyzing. Uh, and the actions of uh, Russian politicians and an element of uh, criminology needs to be applied here to give the lawyers the ammunition to bring charges of genocide, to give uh, politicians the ammunition to scream genocide and demand their governments take action to get uh, Russians prosecuted, to get pros Putin prosecuted, to get um, money and arms to Ukrainians, and this is a current need. It's, we need to be doing this now, not in 20 years' time or in 50 years' time, as part of a book on the subject of where it has been established by 2017 that genocide did occur in Ukraine or the state formerly known as Ukraine. I would, um, if we imagined ourselves for one moment that we were policemen, how would we deal with this? Would we say we need to read books or would we look at the dead bodies that before us? I think if we were policemen, just assuming we all put our police hats on and we looked at this from the point of <clears throat> how a policeman would approach the crimes before us, he wouldn't just say, OK, um, let's sit down now and think about how what was in the minds of these people when they murdered them, whoever murdered them or raped them. Um, he would say, who caused this crime? What's the train of events? And I think to a certain extent, we've forgotten the, the role of the policeman because we've bec all become lawyers, even as academics, we're we're trying to define we're trying to set definitions to um, the evidence that's being thrown before us. Now, back in the back in the Yugoslavian period, when we didn't have Google Translate, I didn't really need to read or to understand Serbo-Croat to know that something evil was going down because there were so many there were so many dead bodies and there were so many crimes taking place. The evidence was just horrendous, but there were still people. And I've never really been quite able to understand this in my in my work in genocide. There's always been people who wanted to deny it. it before we even go down the road of saying, well, who, who, which academics are are in support of this kind of work and which ones aren't and which politicians do and don't. There's always a large cohort, especially um, funny enough, um, newspapers, broadcasters who are reluctant to go down the route of saying we don't want to discuss genocide. We're happy to talk about war crimes. We're happy to talk about crimes against humanity, but there is a reluctance. 
So we have to acknowledge that. So on the one hand, you've got people who don't want to be the policeman and look at the evidence before them. You then have, a, have an, another load of people who don't want to confront the word genocide. And, and as we've been saying, then you have the scholars who are arguing, well, we need more evidence before we make the decision to come to a, to, to, uh, a ruling on whether this is genocide. And then we have the courts, the international courts, who feel reluctant to go down the route of um, making the statement this is genocide and erring on the side of caution by saying, well, it's war crimes, it's crimes against humanity. It's not just the academics. So in a sense here, I'm saying that the academics are not the only ones at fault. But the, we are living in a society of multi, multiple views and opinions and not everybody follows the same the same denial of of genocide it, it, it there's a reluctance and I, I i originally i used to think it was simply because the word is so heinous people rather recoil at it i'm not so sure now i think it's people just don't want that the, there's so many different reasons for example did the allies in um, Iraq and Afghanistan commit to genocide? Was the bombing of Germany a form of genocide? And all of the, the all of those questions are suddenly whipped up again when we get into a situation that we have at the moment. My so my answer, and I've approached that the same way with the with the blogs that I've been writing on on the artillery and the bombardments is to look at the bodies before us and say, how did they die? What is the crime? Because if you go down the other route, now I understand that we need to know the language. Um, we get caught up into all kinds of arguments over, well, is it or isn't it? Let's let's sweep that around. We away. We've got three thousand. I think we've got in one one situation. We had three thousand bodies before us. Well, okay. If I, if if that's what we're confronting now, then we have to say this is a crime. What level of crime? And then we take in the language and build up the the story and go forward. Am I making myself clear? We've got the crime. We don't need <laughs> we don't need any more definitions. <laughs> We've got the crime. Well, that, well, Philip, if I can interject, uh, labeling here is important, not because uh, we should precisely define uh, the crime for some abstract reason, but because calling it genocide brings uh, legal, actual legal consequences in, as with the case of uh, Canada. You get to universal jurisdiction in Canada, and I think in Germany as well, for example. Though they, <laughs> they, they're not going to be calling it genocide anytime soon. Uh, there are legal consequences, and there are consequences under uh, in the United Nations as such, because in relation to uh, the world standing by and not doing anything, for a long time in Yugoslavia and then in Rwanda, the United Nations got together and uh, committed in a resolution uh, to never again 
uh, allow and stand by while genocide is uh, occurring and undertook the responsibility to protect in 2005, uh, as I discussed uh, in our last uh, podcast. And uh, Russia <laughs> didn't complain at that point <laughs> about, about that resolution, uh, presumably thinking that it's going to be able to use 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 that resolution against the US or UK in the future. So there are so there are so there are uh, important consequences for uh, saying it's genocide, and I'm having a look now at uh, academics, the discussion between three academics, someone mentioned them, uh, transcript of their discussion, and we've got the law professor who's going, well, genocide is definitely a legal term, and it's a precise term, and we have to establish uh, genocidal intent. And we've got a, a scholar of uh, genocide, uh, who is going, well, genocide is a legal term, but it's also a political term. It's a moral term, an analytical term. And I think we, it's important that we should know how uh, Russia works, why it works, and analyze the evidence we're seeing on the ground. I think you, you're both right. and. As Philip was talking, I just thought that as academics are lost in this thorny thicket of argumentation, we really see the limits of what academia can do in society. It doesn't have an answer to what to do when things are urgent like this. It resists making urgent decisions because the whole academic method is built around making small claims backed up with huge amounts of evidence that have been through peer review after peer review after peer review that essentially discourage people from ever making a risk and being wrong. And that's okay, in a sense, once we recognise that, that is what academics do. But when it comes to something like this, it means to get to a point where we can really prove in the way that Dustin has just described that this is really a precise use of genocide. In a narrow definition, it's going to take a very long time. And that's why I think the best work on this and the most important work on this particular topic is not going to come from tenure track academics. It's going to come from journalists. It's going to come from activists. It's going to, be, to come from people who are very well educated but are not people within the academic system. But I wonder, is there anything we can do to incentivize academics to actually do this work? If they're willing to do it, and I think many, many are willing to do it, and many would like to be able to do more, but of course it, it serves no benefit to them to get involved in political groups and to go and have meetings with politicians and to talk to people like Dustin and his loyally ilk about what we can do in the present. <clears throat> That's a very interesting point you make there, the, the one thing that I, I picked up on, you know, about what can academics do 
you know, we, we, we sort of come into this, this is becoming quite a central point of the conversation. Given that, especially with the United Kingdom, academia is becoming increasingly more of a business than a, um, a, a collection of centres of learning, do you feel that the, 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 the rise of these big groups of universities is perhaps <clears throat> pardon me, stifling um, possible conversation, consideration <clears throat> and action um, around academics looking into genocide? Because it is a, a proverbial political hot potato. I'm having a look at uh, academics split currently into two points of uh, not points of view, but saying two different things. I'm referring to the, those uh, academics who aren't engaging in what about. I'm seeing the lawyers, the law professors going, well, I'm not sure if it's genocide. Could be. Well, scholars of genocide, scholars of international relations, scholars of history going, well, it looks like genocide. There's a professor Finkel going that he's never seen, he never expected a government to advertise genocide, but that's what the Russians are doing. And they're doing it as we speak. Every day we're getting more and more genocidal statements from uh, academics, from Russian media, from Russian journalists. I was talking with Ian yesterday about their obscene uh, podium style of TV presentation where uh, where um, various uh, Russian politicians, journalists, academics, soldiers stand behind, behind podiums and seem to be trying to outbid each other in more and more ludicrous but dangerous uh, statements as to how they should be genociding uh, Ukrainians. I mean, the thing that I noticed very early on in this were, were, were two things. On the one hand, we steadily watch Mariupol get pulverized. And then there were suddenly these um, postings on um, Ukrainian sources about the nature of the war. And and suddenly from nowhere, Ian pulled a thread. I don't, rem I don't know if we all people remember this now, but he pulled a thread, uh, pushed a thread out there, which was about um, the the Russian mission and, it, and its links with um, the church and uh, where all where all the, 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 the mindset was coming from that was creating this this push. And uh, that's incredibly valuable work, Ian Philip. Yeah, yeah. Be, but, but it struck me what what was interesting in there was that while one of us, in my case, looking at the shelling and the coordinates that were being set against civilian communities, Ian was doing that 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 work about the theory of genocide or the 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 mindset, the motivation of genocide that was that was emerging out of the Russian uh, public broadcasting. And there was enough evidence that by the state, but what, when was it? Two, three weeks ago, 
time goes so quickly. Um, we have a city that was literally on the Guardian front page of the Guardian newspaper, which had been totally devastated. We'd had all this now um, information coming from, funnily enough, um, from very, very few sources. That it it it'd take a, it took a, an awful lot of time for some of the Russian and Eastern specialists to catch up with what Ian had led with. That that was astonishing. Okay, and I mean I'd already done my thing about genocide because I'd seen the killings taking place. And with the research that I've done with um, looking at soldiers in genocidal situations, it, I'm slightly more primed to, to the difference between, you know, the, the, the Nazi crimes of Auschwitz and the, and the camps and actual soldiers boots on the ground committing genocide. That, that, that's my bit of research. And so once the fighting started, Given the areas where they were attacking, I was immediately um, alerted to the problem of what all this artillery would do in areas of large municipalities. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, as the information was coming in from, from Ian through his threads, I was able to piece together the blogs that I did. Well, I still don't, <laughs> I still find it very hard to come to terms with is that we've had Mariupol completely devastated. Hundreds of villages and communities have been absolutely just torn apart. We've got all of these refugees in the West and there's still people sat on the fence reluctant to say this is a genocidal war. This is a genocidal conflict. Never so, again, Philip. Never again. I, I, I am utterly speak. I have, I've got to the point where I've had to stop reading Twitter because I just can't believe how stupid some people really are. You've got the evidence in front of you of masses of dead bodies, ma a lot of rapes. I, I the, the the idea that we've got children coming into into Germany who are bawling their eyes out because they've lost their homes, their livelihoods. They're... The stories of, of people f fleeing from the scenes of the fighting in their cars with Russian soldiers machine gunning them. And when they've arrived at the other in the West, the cars have, have got bullet holes or I mean, what, what, what does it take? for academics to respond and say, this is beyond ordinary warfare. And, and you know what, Philip? I just, as we were talking, I had a quick look in Google Scholar, and I found an article from the late 90s that described Russian genocidal behavior in Chechnya. And of course, there are many more from the 2000s talking about genocide in Chechnya and talking about atrocities in Syria. And combined with, albeit to move away from the question of genocide, combined with the willingness of the regime to murder its own citizens and indeed foreign citizens at home and abroad, you've got, you've got a government and you've got a substantial portion of the population, not all Russians by any means, but enough Russians, 
who are buying into this idea that what we thought were established norms about legal behavior and about rights that individuals have are meaningless and should be trampled in the name of Russian nationalism, Russian expansionism, Russian imperialism, Zionism, whatever you want to call it. How have we identified that? That's an interesting question for the next few years. But Philip's right. Like, <laughs> we don't need any more evidence to say, if you'll excuse my language on your podcast, Ben, bad shit is going down. Right? Really, really abhorrent things are happening. What do we do? Like, you can't just sit here and talk forever. Well, I mean, the, the, you made a good point there. I mean, and there is a, there is a, there is a history with, with within Russian society. You, you know, we only go back to the Soviet times, and and they had Trotsky murdered. Now we've had the Salisbury incidents, and and others overseas. There's, there is, to my mind there does seem to be a, a, a long-term connection, a neo-Stalinism that's perhaps prevalent within Putin's ranks. Some of these guys seem to be straight out of the Soviet playbook of murderers and killers. Um, but ultimately, he, this war has said that they, I know we said that there isn't a strategy and tactics and what have you, but we do appear to have a situation where the artillery has become the linchpin of the, of the operations. And they've linked the artillery to every activity and anything that's come into that area of, that, of those guns and those missiles has been completely and utterly smashed. Well, surely now, given, you know, we're long, we're further down the road, civilians if they could have escaped will have escaped those who are caught up will unfortunately be treated as some kind of this is the this for me it's a it's a horrible thing to say but a lot of that's going to be called proportionality um, and you can see that word emerging now because as the larger numbers of people have, have escaped from Mariupol those who are trapped are caught up with the fighting and we and we get into proportionality and you can you can see the, the the militaryists, the experts, reducing again, withdrawing from the use of genocide, and preferring to talk about well, we've got this fighting here and we've got that fighting there, and and you can see indications that we're withdrawing from having having got to the point where we've all agreed that it's genocide. The Canadians have said it's genocide. United Nations is wanting to to be active. We're now in the point where suddenly the weapon systems are taking over again. The technology is taking into again. We're back to the fighting scenario. I just find it incredible that academics are still going down this route of being counting tanks being destroyed. Manstein in the Donbass. Yeah, I, I, I'm just horrified by it, really. Um, a waste of all this educational, expensive educational talent, just to count tanks being destroyed in a. I wouldn't mind, uh, but many of these tanks are not even very good, you know. Okay. Um, well, I'm aware that you know this is an exceptionally heavy, heavy topic, and you know discussing it for a length of time can be quite a tiring for all involved. Um, 
there is one point that, as we're discussing, it, it, it's come to my mind a little in terms of who, in terms of academia, should be looking at this. Now, my automatic default would be military historians, but surely um, there, there are other fields that could be looking at this as, as well. And the reason why I mention this, you know, you've got uh, Ria Novostoy uh, running some pretty uh, inflammatory articles. So would would those in the media, you know, studying media, would they should they be involved? You have Patriarch Kirill's um, comments, and let's say the guy's not being backwards and coming forwards into what he thinks about the current state of affairs in Ukraine and how the Russia should be behaving. So does that draw in the um, the theological um, academics? And finally, you know, the, 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 this this um, huge ramping up of political rhetoric, especially shown, uh, as you mentioned earlier on, on last night's um, television show, you know, um, I, th I think one general was actually getting lambasted for not being hard enough. Does that then draw in the, the, the political academics? You know, it, does this become uh, a wider, a, a larger political, sorry, a larger academic area of study than we perhaps initially thought? Ian, what, what's your thoughts on that? I think you, you're right, and, and genocide studies have always involved academics from different disciplines. But I think it's it's incumbent on all academics to ask right now: Is there something that I can contribute? What part of this can I listen to the conversation that's going on? Is there something that I can help with? Is there something that I can add, even if it's just drawing attention to this discussion, even if it's just pushing the discussion at their university, their institution, to their students, right? It doesn't have to be going off and sacrificing every part of their research agenda for the next six months to work on this. And I think those with the means of production, as it were, those in charge of academic journals could be asking, can we run special issues on this? that discourage perhaps that very rigorous peer-reviewed activity that, you know, have a big disclaimer at the top. This is an emergency issue. It's something we've put together very quickly. It's not deeply peer-reviewed, but we've invited people to come and talk about this. And maybe we've invited policymakers and think tank people as well to get involved and to give their perspective. Maybe we've asked politicians to comment. I don't know, but just look beyond the boundaries of what is normal, because what we're seeing in reality in Ukraine is not something that is within the bounds of the norm. And therefore, it requires an exceptional answer. And for academics to use the same tools that they always use and the same approaches they always use is just wildly insufficient at this stage. Thank you. Uh, Phil. Um your view your views are sort of the same question really well i think i agree with ian actually in every point there um there was a period when there were sociologists of genocide and they tend to they tended to kind of fade um obviously the the, the guys in media studies i see my, my concern with the military history school is it's very reluctant to confront situations with civilians. Um, and and that gives that 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 gives a, a whole load of problems to um, that that genre. 
because if you if you if you notice that they're, they're, they're very quick to say well it's this offensive that offensive and it's lodgement areas and and fighting troops and and everything but you don't get them saying well so many thousands of people are going on these trains to get out of the country and and that they, they have that problem if, if you look at any of the military historians who studied the the um western front in 1944 when the allies have landed at normandy very few have considered just how many villages were destroyed in that fighting and how many civilians were killed and and that was collateral damage and they still will not want to write about it some some of the britain's top historians will talk about a regiment of tanks marching from normandy to hamburg but they won't mention all of the villages and the communities that were wiped out and destroyed in that in that process of liberating Europe from Nazism. And I don't think people have quite understood what it's going to take to liberate Ukraine from Russian occupation. If they try to, you know, turn it around and, and you, you go the other way, get the, the Russians out of the Ukraine, that's going to cause horrendous damage and destruction. And, and nobody has picked up on that side. So I think military historians, war studies, strategic studies um, schools have really not covered themselves in much glory in this war. And, and they unfortunately, they've repeatedly failed. They failed in Yugoslavia. They failed in Iraq, especially over the difference between maneuver warfare and insurgency, which led them to make some horrendous gaffes and now they're in the next gaffes which is to look at a whole load of junk being destroyed by ukrainian soldiers and assuming that the ukrainians are winning the war which clearly they're not okay. uh, dustin before we go uh, any any closing remarks for, from your particular uh, field of expertise ian at the very beginning of uh, this uh, discussion mentioned the various fields that can be of academia that can be involved in analyzing Russia and the Russian war crimes genocide occurring and you touched on that a minute ago Ben I think uh, and in the context of uh, military history uh, I think it's uh, very ironic that a Russian war criminal a war criminal from the Syrian war uh, general named, forgive me, I've got a couple of colonel generals in my mind, a uh, general named uh, Katapolov is now responsible for the main military political dictatorate, uh, responsible for training political officers, which have been reintroduced into the uh, Russian army after uh, commissars and political officers were removed post-Soviet uh, uh, Union. He's uh, responsible for training uh, those political officers in uh, patriotism, political uh, indoctrination, and legal training on international humanitarian law. So. His political officers who are going to be going around saying those Ukrainians don't exist as Ukrainians, they're Nazis, we should punish them. 
they're also responsible for training troops in the uh, nonsense <laughs> and details of international humanitarian law. That's that, that's uh, that's terrifying. It it's um... it's interesting that you say political officers rather than judge advocate officers. No, they're co they're they're political officers. Right, that's the point. They're they're not they're not military lawyers, but they will be responsible for teaching constructs about uh, international humanitarian law, laws or law and the law on uh, armed conflict. And they get six hours to teach conflict that, while the conflicts will be getting sixty six hours of Russia is the best country in the world and everybody is out to get us. Right, you know, we're back to the Red Army and the Wehrmacht, aren't we? Political officers behind both sides, stirring up motiv and motivating the troops to heinous crimes. Chaps, well, uh, you know, that's, <laughs> that's a very sobering thought. Um, and I, I think that's a very good point at the, uh, to, 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 to end today's discussion. Um, uh, thank you ever so much. Uh, for your time today, I appreciate you're all very busy.